0: If you would, let's go ahead and pick it up where we left off last week. Second Samuel. We actually didn't make it into Second Samuel, but it leads us to um, tag the study, which last week was casualty yet victory. But in order to see a fuller picture, we need to we need to move into this uh, second. Uh, book of Samuel which now is basically laying the the groundwork for David's ministry as king over all of Israel we are closing on the first monarchy and we are now beginning the journey of the second one the second king of Israel and one that history would record from God's perspective as the greatest king of Israel. So a couple of things that I would like to um, address present to you as as a preamble actually to the teaching and comes in the form of questions for us and that would be with regard to this theme of casualty yet victory. Does casualty defeat you? Pause for a second. Will victory motivate you? Pause for a second. Casualty defeating you, victory motivating you. Let's take an opportunity to reverse that. Has victory defeated you? And casualty motivated you? Two different mindsets, aren't they? The one implies what is the dilemma of the human experience. Things are going to happen that are hard, that we even would qualify as bad. We can address that, as I said, with that word casualty. The casualties of life, we have them, don't we? And they certainly are those things that could be marked by others observing us or even how we have handled those casualties as the events of defeat. The way that we allow it to oppress us, the way that we move into depression, as opposed to the necessary element of grief, but of bringing God glory. On the other part of this as well, In the motivation of victory, there has to be a strategy. There needs to be a plan and it can't be your plan. It's got to be God's. There is the common goal that from where casualty has caused defeat, that there must be an ascent from that place of the lower region of the mindset, black and hopeless. Some of you that are listening and many of us perhaps could say, I've been there. That's happened to me exactly as it is being voiced. But with the idea of victory, which I think that as a nation right now, as in a church, we're not going to move from casualties and defeat without a plan that only God can give us. Our focus has to be on him. But let's take a look then on that reciprocal part of it, that flip it, and that is this. Can there be a victory that ultimately leads to a casualty or defeat? And then could it be that in that way, the only thing that motivates you is casualty? Because it happened to you, then it's going to happen to somebody else and they deserve it. Because you have been on the hard side of a casualty event, you're going to take as many people as you can with you. Now we see that in horrific incidences. And you know what the newspapers mark with regard to that. But it can be easily as well associated with believers, who in times of difficulties and the sense of defeat and being able to see the scars of casualty, rather than seek God for the strategy, we emotionally move towards settling the score, or removing ourselves completely from the playing field. And maybe the better word is the battlefield. Do you know we're in a battle? The scriptures right now have actually put us smack dab in a battle, one that has, in fact, been of grievous defeat, casualty for Israel. I kind of saw that coming because it was prophesied to King Saul who heard from the voice of Samuel, brought up in a time in which he had consulted a medium and God just intervened and interjected, chastened Saul, and Samuel was the voice that said, tomorrow you're going to be with me. I suppose as we would look at that, Not a bad place to be with Samuel because Samuel was in the bosom of Abraham. He would have been a figurehead in Saul's life. And there was a comforting assurance that even in a discomforting word, God was going to take care of Saul, even though Saul's life would be terminated. Now, there is something important about that, because that actually is what you would call short notice of a future hope. In the battle that Saul will move into with his son, eldest, and his two younger sons, junior to Jonathan, they will be split up from the centralized army of Israel as the larger group flees and the family of men defend themselves. The characters are very interesting in tonight's study. We have in this study, the uh, characters assigned, the Philistines as we saw from last week would be the offenders. They were an offense to Israel. They were an offense to God. Israel right now would be assigned the title of the Defenders. They are endeavoring to defend God, their faith, and the land that had been given to them. And then we have this kind of very interesting character who turns out to be an Amalekite, and we will call him the Pretender. Offenders, defenders, and pretenders. Kind of sounds like the headlines for today, doesn't it? Which one are we? Maybe a little bit of both. Probably we could say, yeah, I am that character. In fact, somebody just yesterday called me a character. It might fit. In though this teaching, the principles with regard to Our central focus, which is this transition from the pathetic, the chaotic, the spiritually impotent, the rise of a leader that God has his eyes on all along. The important thing to see in this is that God has his eyes on you as well. He's had his eyes on you from the very beginning. Psalm 139 that we have been enjoying for now two days, which I'll try to conclude tomorrow, tells us, literally, that he has made us, he has designed us in the innermost parts of the depths of the earth, which is a poetic phrase of the womb. Before we were even fashioned, he was consummately aware of how skillfully he would rot us. That means manufacture us. That means as an artist, every detail of our life would be in his keeping. That's important because David pens it, which means he believed it for himself. But the other important part of of the rest of this teaching is to see how there was an order that David endeavored to follow that was just difficult, meaning that he literally would allow his footsteps to be ordered by the Lord. And at times his feet would slip from those very carefully, methodically obedient feet moving forward in God's will. And he suffered in those events when he thought that he could either work a different strategy or feign something that was really not authentic as when he moved into a garrison of the king of the Philistines and was endeavoring to make them believe that he was no longer a part of Israel. And when he overheard that He actually was not able to deceive them that many took note of him being, that's David. That's the giant. He killed our main warrior. He feigned being out of his mind, insanity, slobbering and spitting until they said, let's release him just like a rabid dog. That was a means by which God allowed him to escape, but it was really also a means by which a character flaw could be associated with him that didn't give God the best in glory for him. We have those situations in our life, right? We have histories in which we have feigned to be something different than what God has purposed for us to be. And it is reflectively an embarrassment to us. And it didn't make the best impression at the time that we did it. But the bottom line is, is that is a reality of our lives. And so in this preamble of today's tonight's teaching, we want to make sure that as characters, we're not saying, oh yeah, I'm him, I'm him, I'm him, I'm them. We want to be able to say, yep, in my life, I've been the full cast of characters I have played in the Greek tragedy of the one who can smile in one moment and who can frown in the next. And I can put it together and make this character that is rather confusing as to who I am and what part do I play. So let's move into right now this section of Scripture beginning in the second uh, literally acts of David's life. It's not the book of Acts, but it really is this very important revelation of David's maturing as a leader of Israel. Now it came to pass after the death of Saul, when David had returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites, and david had stayed two days in ziklag remember ziklag was the place that he petitioned the king of the philistines to have for his men under the feigned presentation he was working as a counterintelligence agent as he was making known to an enemy force that he was really on their side and against his brethren. It was not true, but it was under that presumption that he was able to harbor in Ziklag. God changed the events. As you remember, there was a scenario in which the Amalekites had taken his possessions and taken his family and the family of his warriors. And so he pursued them in desperation, even at the threat of his men saying, we will kill you. And David sought the Lord with great transparency. This is what that reference is about because God connected with David as David reached out to God. He gave him a battle plan. And the bottom line is, is the battle belonged to the Lord. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, thus saith the Lord. Zechariah chapter 4 verse 6 is familiar to many of you. And it is for us in these times as well, important for us to cleave to that. When so much of our world right now is based on a strategy of survival, is that the way that God wants it? Is he governing in this, or are we self-governing? It's a dilemma of having power and yet finding ourselves impotent, of being attacked by an enemy and coming up with a strategy. Has God given that to us? Or are we becoming gods that by our emotions, by perhaps knowledge, it lacks wisdom because we did not ask of God? When you see the triumphs of Israel with regard to the progress they made and the establishment of God's will in their life, it was always coinciding with obedience and reverence. It's what the church needs to be about now. I would rather be in the house of God, where truly I believe it is God's desire that the church meet. But the strategy for the church now as we have prayed is that we will bring church then into the homes of God. The houses that shelter those who now are hungry and thirsty and cloistered away from fellowship need to have a connection with God. Though I believe the connection is important, mano y mano, Group by group, families with families. This is where we're at. What you see of me is what you get for now. But God says, I am ever abounding in what you need. And even though you feel pressed to need the other, and the other is good, especially when you talk about the family of God, I really want to come into your life. As the most necessary person of your life. As the one who will give you the strategy for the battle that you're in. So this right now kind of, in this narrative, sums up where David has come from. So he returns to Ziklag. But it's not going to be what it once was. Because God doesn't want him to be there. Ziklag was never intended to be David's final destination. Nor... Is the world intended to be God's final destination for you? So part of what we need to do is to have a heavenly perspective says to us, my home is in heaven. And that begs in the other question. As a character in this drama of life, is your destiny heaven? Will you be one in the closing of your eyelids? And the last breath that you were able to draw, be able to say, I know where I'm going and I will see you there on the other side. We know that David never had a doubt in his heart or his mind on the reality of the presence of God and where ultimately he would go. Scriptures have even told us that in an episode, which we have yet to study but that you're familiar with, when there was sin in David's life and that sin yielded the consequence of a young baby being taken at birth. And David mourned in the loss of that child. And the question was, how can David now be up from mourning and in his apparel, fresh linen, face washed? hair-combed, crown-positioned. How can he be this way? But he was able to say, my son will not come back to me, but I will go to be with my son. Isn't that cool? You can look that up. This, of course, wouldn't be his reality now, but it would be his reality. In all of the years of following God, he was able to say in a very difficult time of loss, I will go one day to be with my son. So maybe this interjection is important because maybe that's what God's asking us to do inventory our lives and say, Do you know where you're going to be? I know where you want to be. I know you want things as they once were. And that may be, in fact, what God will do, but I know this this is a time of sobriety it's a time in which we cannot make it if it's a strategy of survival on our own so verse one simply tells us where he's come from and that means that as he has come back from a victory that god gave him pay attention to that phrase coming back from a victory that God has given him, it will establish him that in the sorrow yet to be revealed, he will claim that. God has given all of us present tense victories a day ago, a month ago, a year ago. I kind of made a point of that today in my teaching, kind of getting... A little bit stiff-lipped and grumpy over a jagged edge on my coffee mug and as I was complaining and that the coffee wasn't really as good as I thought it was the Lord said do you remember how good I was in that day in which the scar on the edge of where your lips are sipping and enjoying that freshly brewed coffee do you remember that incident I saved your life You were flat as a pancake. You made a substitutionary bridge of a piece of wood that caved from beneath you. And you were able to rise from humiliation. You were able to see deliverance. When in a moment, your head could have been bouncing off of those rocks rather than your coffee mug and the cap to it. By the way, if you didn't get that today, you can go back and review it. But that was all a story, a part of Psalm 139. Wonderfully made, and God says, wonderfully delivered. The third day, behold, it happened that a man came from Saul's camp. And it says in verse 2, as he has come, his clothes are torn and dust is on his head. So it was when he came to David that he fell to the ground and prostrated himself. In the topography of study, it has been suggested a three days journey, perhaps 80 miles to reach Ziglag from Mount Gilboa. It would have been probably just prior to the Philistines coming and desecrating the body of Saul and his three sons and removing them to bring them back to their encampment, their fortress, which I shared last week. But this is an Amalekite and I want you to pay attention to that word and then also to pay attention to the details that are coming from his mouth and the reason that there is the need to call him untruthful, a liar, a pretender, and to see perhaps if we can discover his motivation As he comes into this camp and really is wanting audience with David, David said to him in verse 3, Where have you come from? So he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. Then David said to him, How did the matter go? Please tell me. And he answered, The people have fled from the battle. Many of the people are fallen and dead, and Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead also. This is fact. Nothing pretentious about this. An element yet to be revealed, though, is concerning what he did and why he would say such a thing. This would have been the first notification. From David, knowing that as he was moving opposite of Saul, he was aware that Saul was in deep warfare with the Philistines. You know, it was the place always that David wanted to be, was next to Saul, not only as his son in law, but just flat out as a servant of the first king of Israel he had a servant's heart even though God looked at him as one who had the shepherd's heart, one who would protect giving up his life for his own and really loving God with everything that was within him. And the important thing to realize too, is that even as David had in this situation, his own challenges with men who at times wavered in their opinions about him, God would have you know as well. That is not unusual for those seemingly the closest near you, those who are protectors of you, philosophically have embraced everything that you're about, and all of a sudden a hardship comes into their situation, and you get the blame. And they're ready to take you on. I don't believe there's anybody in leadership at any level that has not experienced that. But I will have a reminder given to you that when we did study that, David had sought his comfort, his solace in the Lord. When the stones were ready to fly from the hands of those who had pledged allegiance to him, no doubt. He really believed that his life was at risk, but he went before God to seek his encouragement. So the picture again, even right now as we move through this, remember, in these consecutive lessons about David's life, seek the Lord to be encouraged when stones are about to fly, when people's dispositions have changed towards you, accusations that are false against you. That's the lesson. David right now summons analytically an assessment of the description of what has happened. He realizes that calamity has happened to Saul. In essence, as the title says, the casualty of the monarchy. It's over. And to such a degree that David really did love Saul, it affects him deeply, which is demonstrated in what is voiced in the next verses. So first of all, as David probes, David said to the young man who told him, how do you know that Saul and Jonathan, his son are dead? And the young man who told him said, As I happened by chance to be on Mount Gilboa, there was Saul leaning on his spear, and indeed the chariots and horsemen followed hard after him. Now when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me, and I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? So I answered him, I am an Amalekite. He said to me again, Please stand over me and kill me, for anguish has come upon me, but my life still remains in me. So I stood over him and killed him because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the bracelet that was on his arm and have brought them here to my Lord. Therefore, verse 11, David took hold of his own clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. Verse 12, and they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son, for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. We'll stop there at 12. And so this gives us right now a detailed account of an untruthful voicing from this Amalekite just happening to be on Mount Gilboa. In the happening of being on Mount Gilboa, it is very likely that what he was was a surrogate of the Philistine army. He was one that actually would move around in particular conflicts in which there would be the scavenging or booty left by the dead. And before it could be collected by the enemy, he would go in and, and take whatever spoils he could haul off before being caught what you would call probably in our Civil War days a carpetbagger, endeavoring to profit off the loss of others in advance of something changing. We have that. There's been profiting off of the casualty of others and the falling of the markets. That kind of disposition seems to be a part of the human depravity, the condition of looking after myself and not looking after others. Again, I think it's an exception. It's not the rule. By and large, people, I think, do care and desire compassionately to show that and what can be given or prayers that are, in fact, connecting them with God, even though they don't know it. But the Amalekite, one of the things you need to remember was an enemy of Israel. And one of the things that you need to know is that Saul was commanded by the Lord through Samuel, take them out. They are to be purged from this land. Because the Amalekites were a heinous people. They were immoral. They were wicked You need to understand that when judgment comes against a people group in the Old Testament, it's a picture of what God knows with regard to the expression of sin. And God would still operate in that manner if it were not for the age in which we truly live, which is of grace. God has suspended his judgment upon a Christ-rejecting sinful world that is filled both with depravity and immorality and false spirituality. And God has said for season, I will suspend this wrath. And how did he do it? And that's an important question perhaps to ask. He did it because just in a few days, we are going to be looking soberly at the reality of Jesus going to the cross in which all of the wrath of God would be poured out upon his son, the holy sacrifice, the one who indeed would be pronounced even among his his people as the son of David. A greater than, and yet a picture of the heart of David that he came through the lineage of, this very David that we're looking at now. And so, This Amalekite was indeed a transgressor. There was nothing noble about what it is he's saying, but the point that also needs to be made, as now mourning is going through, evaluation is being sought, wisdom is being asked for, he wasn't simply by chance on Mount Gilboa. He was there to take advantage of a king who had been slaughtered with his sons. And knowing that he had no peace treaty perhaps with the Philistines, but wanting to profit off of what he could take, he strategized, if I go to David, who has been pursued by this king for ten years, I will find favor in his sight. And I can rise up the ranks and be something altogether than I am. I can have position and authority esteem, because I'm going to be touching David's heart with the confirmation that his enemy is dead. And I can even have some boasting points that I contributed to that. Maybe even be given a special award. What he didn't know was David's heart towards what we would say was an enemy behavior against David. Saul was vindictive, pursuant of a young man who grew up to be a solid man, now in his 30s, and spent a good chunk of his monarchy squandering the great things that he could have done had he acknowledged David early on in his reign, bringing David up instead of trying to bring David down. There's a principle about that. We have to be bringing people up, but what we've learned how to do is bring them down, bring them down, tear them apart, find the dirt, shovel it on them. And that is not God's way. That's not God's way. It is wrong to be spreading gossip and innuendo, it is wrong to highlight the failures of individuals who God, in his nature, is endeavoring to show faithfulness towards. The thing about Saul, though, is that God did love him. And God's intention, even in the consequence of what we would say corrective surgery, a change of plans would have found something that would have redeemed his squandered years. God is a redeemer. What that means is that when life cashes you in and you're only worth a penny, when you've all along felt you're worth 10 bucks and maybe indeed have been in your own eye, God says, I treasure you more than anything that you've ever treasured or that you've ever thought about yourself. And where you are an irredeemable, inexcusable, worthy of the garbage heap of life, God says, that's not the way that I think of you. Is that found in here? It is implied, but the severity right now is that this Amalekite right now would have been under the penalty of a previous judgment even though he wasn't with his clan group, everything about his sinister plan was was now percolating in this audience that he had with David. He was totally motivated on preserving himself when in fact the call would have been, man, if I go to the Philistines, I'm a dead man. And if I go to the Israelites, I'm a dead man. What do I do? And so logic would have said, Logic would have said, I will lie. But principle would have said, confess. You know David to be merciful and gracious. You've heard of him. You've heard of him in the way that he treated Saul on occasions in which others had said, David, now's your opportunity. Take the throne. Take his crown. Kill him. God's giving you this opportunity. And David would not do it. Because that wasn't in David's heart to do. Even though to you and I being treated in such a ruthless manner and dogged for 10 years, we would say, totally, it's it's absolutely what we got to do. And David had men that would have done it for him. Which is the other danger of authority is that it puts you in a position of power in which You can pretty much have done what you want to have done. And God would have said, abstain, delay, don't. So God knows how to work, obviously, correction into everybody's life. And he does indeed assign from what I believe is one of the highest tiers of authority in that area of Overseeing families for us to train and rear our children in the way that they should go. And he by no means asks us to give our children their way because he is the way, the truth, and the life. And when they move in a direction contrary to the Lord and by not instituting a plan of discipline, we essentially authenticate their decisions, that's not good. David would have difficulty in his parenting skills on that. That's later on to be revealed. But the idea right now is that this Amalekite, his heart needed to recognize I'm dead anyway, this goes. I will appeal to the man that I have heard. As a heart that follows after God, I have lived among godless people. I have behaved godlessly, recklessly, unrighteously. I'm a scavenger of the things that are rotting. And I'm stealing stuff that does not belong to me. And I'm embellishing my life story. I'm an influencer. And now I want my place in the sunlight of Israel's people. And so what is happening right now is that David now in a time of deep mourning and seeking the Lord and his gut wrenching and his mind needing clarity is just simply given revelation. Because when you move back into the scriptures, remember, we were told that Saul was wounded and because he did not want to be humiliated as the Philistines would have done and subject to desecration overtly. He fell on his sword because he couldn't convince his armor bearer to do it. And when he died, his armor bearer did the very same thing. That was the principle we learned last week. And we said that probably would have been much better had he died with the sword in his hand and not upon him, but trying to take out as many as possible with a petition to God, let me die with these godless people. Because that would have been in the line and the model of a great man of God who was a judge. That was Samson, who lived a very pathetic life when he had been given much duty and strength by God. But his last words were, Let me bring you glory by dying with these whom you desire judged. I blew it, but if it brings you glory that in my death you reign supreme. Let me bring the house down. And so that's a picture. David, in evaluating this man, and as he has rent his garments and mourning all day and fasting, lamenting, David said to the young man who told him, Where are you from? And he answered, I am the son of an alien. And Amalekite, another detail coming into light here. It's another embellishment. It doesn't mean that he wasn't, but what he's saying is, hey, under the Levitical law, you know, the things that Moses had established, God told him that for the aliens in the land, if we come in and submit to you guys, we're one of you guys. So it's like, you know, we're kind of like his and cousins. You good with that? I mean, you know, we've served you well. I'm on your side. I'm one of your team guys. God did make provision for what we would say were enemies to have humbled themselves and submitted to authority and been a part of the Jewish culture as proselytes. They had restrictions, but they had great admittance if they were able to confess that the God of Israel would be their God and the people of Israel would be those whom they would serve. So he moves in this direction Though there's no evidence whatsoever that that is in fact what happens. He's just trying to link to something that could better play deceptively in David's eyes for esteeming him. So David said to him in verse 14 How was it you were not afraid to put forth your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? See, he just cuts through all of that. And he says, do you realize basically that in all these years, that was the last thing that I would ever have done? You do not understand me. If you think that in what you did, you are going to touch my heart and make me just be impressed with you, you've got it wrong. You know nothing about me. My life was lived to honor God, even in the difficulty of one who hated me. And my passion was to bring God glory in my misery. And so you're telling me that in killing Saul, that's going to impress me. I did everything to this day that would resist that and prevent it from happening. Even to my own men, who with one whisper, would have done it obediently. So David called one of the young men and said, go near and execute him. And he struck him so that he died. So David said to him, your blood is on your own head. For your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. That was his bragging point, and ultimately it was his lips that indicted him. Again, David wouldn't have had evidence of exactly how Saul had died. We know that because we read the script in advance of that coming to light. What David saw is one who defied the principles of not serving himself but trusting in God And that is what David lived by and was willing to judge in light of this man's pretensions of wanting to have position, of claiming the right to authority and companionship with David. It didn't work. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord, your blood is on your own head. And this is a word that means we are very much responsible in the times in which we have behaved contrary to God, have exercised maliciously, calculatingly our position. our personalities to gain a favorable light when we do not care about God at all. But we wanna use the language that's gonna work. We wanna work the work. And God says, I've gotta work that out. In this case, I execute judgment. You're gone. So what this ought to do in these times in anybody's life is it summons us to repent saying, huh, dead if I go there, dead if I go there, hmm, I'm a dead man. I want an alternative that speaks of life and I want to do it on the terms that meet God's approval, not man's. Because I think if I go in that direction, that man whom I'm thinking I might be able to pull the wool over his eyes is actually a keen and perceptive shepherd of God and I think that I am dead that way. As well. In this case, there are those who need to make that eternal decision because everything in you summons the excuses and the strategies of not being honest with God. And the word of the Lord will be in that day in which the blood is upon you because you didn't take the blood that Christ shed for you. You will be judged. And execution is the terms of God. Wow, great story, Rich. I'm not sure if I feel so good about this. Well, you should, because, you know, God forewarns. He's a loving God. And we are in a wonderful, beautiful dispensation of God, grace. God's riches at the expense of Christ The Lord God paid for everything that we are guilty of under the law, of lying, deception, depravity, everything that is an offense to God, unrighteousness, immorality, neutrality. I can't make up my mind about God. I know I've heard this, I've heard that, and it makes sense, but I'm not ready yet. Well, neutrality is not going to save you. In fact, neutrality is actually one of the things that causes nations to have to submit to other nations because they can't make up their mind about the fight they need to be in. And the same is true about us. If the battle belongs to the Lord and it's not by my might, not by my power, but by the Spirit of God, I better make sure that I'm on the right team and that I'm committed to enter into that knowing that the results will be right. So I actually think this is a fascinating story of great encouragement because it is at this time in which that which God had asked Saul to do, David ultimately did. That's really what it means right now. If you're going to fail to do what God says needs to be done, there will be somebody who will do what God says needs to be done. And the other thing that I want to say in the closing of this, and it unfolds really beautifully in this song that David pens and it's a glorious unfolding of truth with regard to his heart for his enemy because as he assesses the years of hardship he is able to say nevertheless in the things that Saul found contrary to actually truth believed in and pursued me not only haphazardly, but to my hazard. In other words, he made mistakes against God and he pursued me to my own hazard. He established a monarchy. He established a kingdom. I was a part of the beginning of that work and the severed by personality, I saw what he was doing. I understood the complexities of managing men, of wavering at times between the decision that I should make because God has said to make it and the decision that also I'm prone to make. because men conspire against God and persuasively convince me what to do. He actually learned in this process of maniacal pursuit to also see that there was good in Saul. What was one of the remarkable good things that he could see in Saul? He had sons. And one of them extraordinarily and exceedingly was critical in David really having a great confidence in his future because Jonathan was the one who voiced contrary to his father's heart. David, it's obvious to me, you're going to be king. And when you are, I will be by your side. In the meantime, this is my cape, my robe. It represents my royalty and the fact that I am successor to my father's kingdom. And I give this to you my sword, it's yours. I'm a warrior. I see you as a warrior. And this is really important because, in review, um, Jonathan was like 27 years older, literally a father figure to David who came down to the level of a co equal, a brother, and even a notch lower, a subordinate, which is why the youth need to excel in commending those who, in maturity, are leading them in the faith, but while those who lead them in the faith are those that need to look to the next generation and commend them for what God will put into their hands to do, inevitably, eventually, in time, according to his way, not according to his strategies. There's an important principle there. Eventually, we all move up the rung of progress and of position and exaltation because God's the one that does that. And we looked last week, and I will go there because I find it to be just very encouraging to me. And that's Psalm 75. I'm going to read it for you. For exaltation comes neither from the east nor from the west nor from the south, but God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another, for in the hand of the Lord there is a cup, and the wine is red, and it is fully mixed, and he pours it out. Surely its dregs shall all the wicked of the earth drain and drink down. But I will declare forever, I will sing praises to the God of Jacob." you wicked, you unrighteous. The cup that the Lord pours for you will be sifted through with your teeth, those bitter dregs, And judgment will be upon you. But I will taste altogether something different, sweet. And the acknowledgement that in this psalm, which is credited towards Asaph, who was a minister of music, Under David's tutelage, a next generation poet who was able to express with precision the same heart that David had, there are those who are coming along who will have the articulation and the vision, the passion and conviction to be able to bring truth to the ears of the listener while time remains for ears to hear what the Lord has to say, what the Spirit is saying to the church. So that psalm is simply reminding us that there is timing and timing is everything. And and David doesn't write a song that condemns Saul. He looks to commend Saul for the things that he did do right. Can we do that? Can we stop finding faults and start accentuating what God has revealed to us about the faithfulness. Everybody's got a contribution of faithfulness to God, even though, as well, failures can stack up. But God wants us to be those who give Him glory because He's given grace. And as one who has been gracious to others, that may indeed be worthy of judgment we are able to say i see good in that person i've seen an accomplishment i've seen attributes that tell me god's not through with him judgment is passed over him i'm going to trust what god will do in them young man old man young woman old woman, baby. So God's not through.